Two and a Half Admins, episode 27. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again, and we've got a bunch of your emails to get to. You can get in contact with us, show at 2.5admins, if you've got comments or questions or want free consulting. So the first one is from Colin. He says, you talked about this on episode 11, they finally fixed it, and then he linked to Chromium cleans up its act, and daily DNS root server queries drop by 60 billion. Per day. Yeah, which to be fair is not in any way a surprise given that we'd already talked about the fact that those those DNS root server queries from Chromium were 60 billion a day. So Chromium cleans it up, those go away. There you go. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. So the before the update, the total, or the peak number of root DNS queries was 143 billion per day and traffic has gone down to normal levels of 84 billion representing a 41% decrease in overall volume on the entire internet. <laughs> because, you know, most queries don't make it to the root server, right? If you run your own DNS server, then once every couple of days, you might have to ask the root server, who does .com again? Once? But because Google was just making up random things and poking the root for it, it was asking about made-up names to make sure that your ISP wasn't lying about the results from every machine running Chromium. Yeah, which it turns out are quite a lot. So good they finally fixed it. Okay, Michael says, regarding a Samba Active Directory server, Zential has long provided a reasonably good Samba 4-based Active Directory server with a GUI. That's uh, Z-E-N-T-Y-A-L. I had not heard of this. I think I might have at one point, but I'm still with Jim's point that if you need Active Directory, then you probably want Windows in actual Active Directory. And if you don't, then why are you doing Active Directory anyway? Do something more normal. I haven't used it for anything in production. It looks like a reasonably competent... I'm not sure if it's actually web-based or just looks web-based, but you know, it's it's one of those kind of thrown together like it works, free NAS-ish looking interfaces that uh, you know you can fill out text boxes and click buttons and hopefully in theory manage a small active directory. I'm not sure how valuable that really is to most people, but if that's the thing you want, there it is. All right. JS Billings said regarding CentOS with no IP tables rules. If they're running CentOS 8, Firewall D uses NF tables, not IP tables, in brackets, NetFilter. So I wouldn't expect any rules to appear from IP tables commands. So that's a good point that, uh, you know, newer CentOS and by extension RHEL versions are using NF tables underneath Firewall D. And I, I guess that's one argument for using, you know, uh, an abstraction layer such as Firewall D is if the underlying technology changes your knowledge of the higher level abstraction is still good and you don't have to learn a new thing. But crusty old curmudgeon that I am, you know, my interpretation is to be more along the lines of like, you know, oh, that's just another excuse not to learn the actual thing and how it works. Okay, Chris says, in a recent episode, you heard from a listener regarding replacement of his Synology NAS. I know he mentioned being comfortable on the command line, but listening to his requirements, Unraid is a perfect fit for him. He gets VMs, Docker, and support for a RAID-like array snap raid of whatever hard drives he wants to slap into the server curious what you think i don't run unraid myself i'm all proxmox and vmware esxi on my servers but i've seen how amazing unraid is for your home user who just wants a home server to play around with 
I don't know that I would call anything amazing if I hadn't used it myself. I don't know. I just find the idea of skunky raid things of just uh, whatever disk I happen to have laying around means that the person's not that interested in the integrity of their data. I would agree with that. If performance is something that matters at all to you, that's also very much going to be an also ran. Basically, it kind of boils down to if you don't really care and you just want to make this hodgepodge of whatever randomly sized hard disks you could find lying around into a big thing, Unraid will do that for you. If that's all you want, then maybe that's the solution that you're looking for. That's not what I want. I want guaranteed, very high quality data integrity. I want high predictable performance. I want an actual, you know, game plan. And Unraid is not really the solution for all that. Okay, Ben and a bunch of other people said, I would like to point out that Microsoft has a streaming platform called xCloud, currently only on Android, but coming to other platforms this year. All Microsoft published titles release day and date on it too. So that is something that we failed to point out when we talked about game streaming. I don't think of xCloud as being a thing properly yet because it's still not properly released. It's kind of like still in beta in my mind. So yes, we should have mentioned this is the bottom line, but it's not something like Stadia, which has been officially launched in my mind. And that's my excuse for not bringing it up. It looks like it's something that will be very interesting when it's actually a thing that, you know, you can get your hands on and, and poke at. I, I love the idea. And, uh, you know, maybe it will do a better job with what it's trying to do than frankly Stadia has with its, but it remains to be seen. For right now, it's a very interesting vapor. All right. Matt asked us on Twitter, what are your best or favorite plugins for Nagios? Now, you two seem to assume he was asking what plugins you had written, but I think it was more a case of what your favorite plugins are that you have used for Nagios. That's the same answer, though. <laughs> the plugins that I have used are A, the ones that came with Nagios, and you know, B, the ones that I wrote. I do not go like just randomly grabbing plugins off the web and adding them in willy-nilly. Oh, I have a couple of random Perl scripts from other people that we've found and used or extended into our own thing. But um, I think the biggest one that I love is the one that checks the SSL certificate expiration date on a bunch of domains for us. So it catches when Let's Encrypt isn't updating automatically properly. So if that ever happens, you know, we get told, hey, the certificate would expire in 20 days and it should have auto renewed at 30 days. Go look at it. Oh, does that actually ever happen though? Yeah. Oh, I found Let's Encrypt to be really solid for me. Right. Well, it's, it depends on the tool. Uh, we had a problem. One of the domains expired and it uh, acme.sh didn't complete its run because of it. And so it renewed the certificates, but never restarted the web server because one of the certificates was missing. Yeah, you can also have an issue. Um, Let's Encrypt changed their authentication mechanisms and uh, you know deprecated one of the older ones. And so you would have to update the plugin or your uh, renewals would eventually fail. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think a lot of the answer to your objection there, Joe, with like, oh, Let's Encrypt is really solid. I haven't had that issue. Well, how many hundreds of domains are you renewing with Let's Encrypt? <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. True, mine's a handful, yeah. And CertBot seems to have been fine and just gets updated with, you know, unattended upgrades and has just been totally flawless for me. You don't even have to set up your cron jobs anymore. It just does it automatically for you. Yeah, it's great. But I mean, it still comes down to are you monitoring things or aren't you? And if you're not, things break and you find out about it when you find out about it. If you are, 
you find out immediately or better yet, before they even break. Yes. If you're not monitoring your expiration dates on your SSL certs, then you don't find out until people are calling, why the crap doesn't my website work? If you're monitoring it, then, you know, there's like a week left to go and your phone says, uh, hey, boss, I should have gotten a new you know cert by now. And you got another seven days to figure out what's going on and fix it. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Like with ours, it's, oh, the certificate is down to three weeks left and it should auto renew at four and a bit. Yep. So obviously something's hinky. Also, you know, still not everything is Let's Encrypt. Um, I still have quite a few sites that I have to deal with that for whatever reason, the client is not comfortable with Let's Encrypt or is just, you know, hell bent on having one of the expensive, more than domain validated certificates that you have to purchase. And, you know, the, the plugin functionality that we're talking about, I, I think I ended up just writing my own for that. There, there are a few random ones you can find, but it's, it's pretty basic. And either way, the point is you don't have to worry about whether it is or isn't Let's Encrypt. You just say, hey, this is a domain and I want to, you know, make sure that the cert's healthy and I want to be warned X days out, you know, if it's about to expire. Yeah. If it's got less than 30 days left before it expires, start nagging me once a day. Uh, and then if it gets down to seven days, start nagging me once an hour until I fix it. Because, yeah, like we have a couple of wildcard certs from before Let's Encrypt that, you know, it was like, buy it for two years at a time to avoid the problem. But uh, the other one was, I think, the one of the Java apps that we use that listens and it does HTTPS or whatever. You had to fully restart the whole Java application for it to reload the certificate. And that would interrupt things that were happening in that app. And so we ended up having to come up with a solution in order to switch to Let's Encrypt away from uh, a, you know a year-long certificate or whatever of having to put an Nginx reverse non-HTTPS proxy in front of it to terminate the SSL and be able to, you know, reload a new certificate every 30 days instead of doing it in the Java application just because it didn't support reloading uh, the certificate without having to restart the whole app. Uh, I'll also point out that not every certificate that you want to monitor that way is HTTPS. Um, You know, sometimes it may be IMAPS or SMTPS. And matter of fact, that's one of the more common issues that I have with uh, Let's Encrypt certs specifically I have found it to be less than super reliable, the process of actually bouncing. I can't remember now if it's Postfix or Dovecot. I think it's Dovecot that's been a pain in the butt about that. Uh, you got to bounce the whole service to get it to reload the certificate. The certificate itself refreshes fine, but the mail server won't pick it up until you, you know, kill and restart the entire service. And if you're monitoring that, then you'll get some idea that something has gone wonky and you can shell in and you can manually restart it before anything goes bad, as opposed to, again, you know, getting a call from 50 users in an hour saying my email stopped working this morning. Yep. Then one we wrote ourselves monitors the total amount of bandwidth the server has pushed out since whatever anniversary we tell it to care about. Uh, And we use this for some of our rented servers where we... We have a quota, you know, you're allowed to upload 20 terabytes a month. And so as the server gets towards that quota, we change our load balancer mix to not use that server so much so that it doesn't run over. And it does this proportionally through the month. So, you know, if we're halfway through the month and we've used 75% of our bandwidth, we need to send less traffic to that server. I wrote a simple one, check all disk space that, you know, does exactly what it sounds like. It takes all mounted file systems excludes the ones with special, you know, file systems like tempfs or uh, devfs, or there's a couple others that you wouldn't want to check disk space on because it's not really applicable. And then just warns you if any of them are getting close to either, you know, out of space or out of inodes. That's come in pretty handy. 
So is there not one central repository for Nagios plugins then? There used to be a thing called Nagios Exchange or something with a giant list of them, but it's it's not yeah. curated in any way. Exactly. Nagios Exchange is a good place to get ideas. It's a good place to see how you might write a plugin for something. If you're very code averse and adventurous, sure, you can just go there and grab something that looks good and try it out and say, yep, good enough. But I just, that's kind of not how either Alan or I roll. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, You can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way. And thank you everyone who is supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support and you'll find links there. So go and check that out. And remember for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So the first one then is from Julian. I'm wondering whether ZFS would be of any use to me in ensuring integrity of data stored on a PC. Yes. (laughs) Obviously. I have a laptop that has a second hard drive that I use to store my data, mainly photos and archives of work that he doesn't need instant access to. To back up the data, he has a small script that uses rsync to mirror the data to a two terabyte external drive. He's been using this setup in some form or another for about 10 years, so the amount of data is not insignificant. Both drives are currently formatted to EXT4, as is the OS drive in the machine. I've recently added a third drive that I only back up once a month, but I'm worried that the current setup is still a bit risky and that bit rot or drive failure could sneak up on me. I don't want to end up in a situation where the data on the laptop gets corrupted and I end up corrupting the backup because I didn't catch it in time. Do you have any suggestions for avoiding this kind of issue using EXT4 or would ZFS be a much safer bet? How can ZFS be used to check data integrity on a single drive? Is there anything I can do better that doesn't involve a NAS with a crazy number of drives? Yes, ZFS would be a safer bet. Uh, Checking data integrity on a single drive is super easy, super simple. If we're talking about uh, Ubuntu ZFS, when you install it, you'll automatically get a cron job that scrubs your pool once a month. What a scrub actually does is read every single block of data written to that pool and check it versus its uh, integrity checksum. And it will let you know, uh, let you know is maybe a little bit too strong. It'll show up in zpool status if you have any checksum errors. Now with only a single drive, it won't be able to fix it, but it will absolutely detect that. And if you're looking at zpool status, you'll know. There's a Z daemon, which you can configure to email you information about this, which I think we've 
covered on the show before. I am not at all a believer in email-based monitoring. There's too many ways for it to go wrong. But this is still going to be a lot easier than anything that you might try to gin up on EXT4 to monitor for drive integrity. Because on EXT4, the usual solution would be either MD5 sum or, you know, PARs for every single file and reading all the files and regenerating checksums and making sure those checksums match per file. And it's just a hideous nightmare and you're not going to keep doing it over the long term. Whereas a monthly or better yet a weekly scrub, that is super easy and you can check that with a simple zpool status and, you know, go on about your day. Yeah, so as ZFS is writing data to the disk, it records what the checksum was when you wrote it. And then when it reads it back, it can run the checksum again and compare it to... So basically, the information you're comparing against is stored in ZFS, although in a different place so that the same corruption isn't likely to hit both at the same time. And so it gives you all those advantages. And yeah, even on a single drive, it'll be able to detect the problem. It just probably won't be able to fix it because it's not going to have another copy of the data somewhere. Uh, some important metadata it will do two or three copies of, but that's not really going to save much. Of course, the other major advantage to using ZFS is now when you're doing your backup, whether uh, instead of using rsync, you can use ZFS replication, and it will be somewhere between one and one million times faster. Jim has done some pretty impressive benchmarks on that, where he's, you know, even if you only change one byte out of that two terabytes, rsync is still going to take a while to check it all, and ZFS will finish in a second. When Joe was first reading the question, uh, my first thought was, you could use ZFS on the backup hard drive, but then you have this problem that if EXT has the bit rot, rsync is going to copy the incorrect data to ZFS, and it's not going to fail the checksum in ZFS. So you're going to want ZFS all the way through, if possible. If not, then the way to recover from that is just having ZFS snapshots and eventually finding out that EXT corrupted the file because, you know, it doesn't look right. And being able to go to the snapshot and get a previous version that hadn't been messed up by the, the bit rot. If you've ever seen what happens to a JPEG, if you just change one bit somewhere in it, it's pretty hilarious what it does to your family photos. The top half of the photo will be fine. And then there's one bit flipped. And then just everything after it is just a rainbow of unicorn shit. So you said that Either you have to manually check Zpool status or have it email you, which is not a great option. What are the other options then for being alerted to this? Well, Zed gets generates a system level notification. So, you know, at some point you went to could hook something up so it does like a little notification in your desktop saying, hey, there was a checksum error or something. Or I think with Zed, you can have it run a, a script that will do whatever you want it to do. It's just a matter of configuring the ZFS event daemon to do something. Or if you're on FreeBSD, it's uh, DevD. Uh, we'll get the notification and then you just tell it what you want it to do with that information. Or if you're feeling more hardcore, another option is pluggity plug plug plug. Use my project Sanoid, which includes Nagios plugin functionality, and you can just issue Sanoid dash dash monitor dash snapshots. It exits, uh, you know, zero, one or two for OK, Warner, crit as Nagios expects. Uh, you install a, uh, a Nagios monitoring application like the free ANAG for Android on your phone. And then at that point, you know, if at any time you have checksum errors showing up on your pool, you'll immediately have your phone go in your pocket and, you know, warn you about it. Yeah. And the nice thing that ZFS does that a lot of other file systems can't is that you can do zpool status dash V. And when there was corruption, it can tell you which files were impacted. And it's like, you need to restore these three files from your backup instead of just saying, hey, your whole file system is probably suspect now. All right, all right, that's enough ZFS love. Never. No, it's not. Never. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, yes, it's enough for today, let's say. So Harold writes to us, what advice would you give to friends who are technical enough to want to turn an old PC into a NAS, but who don't want to pay for proper gear? What would you say to them when they start asking about connecting to it from outside their LAN? I have a friend in this situation, and saying learn it all properly doesn't seem to be an option. He is determined to blunder his way through it. How do you want to connect to it from outside the LAN? Are we talking like you want to do an own cloud, next cloud type thing to be able to access the photos on your NAS from your phone? Or are we talking about something completely different? I don't know. We could be talking Plex. We could be talking all sorts here. But I suppose the, the crux of this question is, how do you advise people who know just enough to get themselves in trouble, I guess? Well, number one thing is don't put your NAS on the internet. Do something different. Like, you know, Plex is more, it connects out and mediates connections for you. And so it's not just anybody on the internet can reach into a, an open port and see what's on your Plex. Yeah, I think the biggest advice, is, it, basically, it's just what Alan was just getting at. Don't connect it directly to the internet. Don't set it up where you can just poke at the services on that machine. Use a proper VPN solution instead, whether that's WireGuard or, you know, Nebula or I suppose OpenVPN, but uh, I, I would certainly go WireGuard these days. And what about the uh, not wanting to pay for proper gear and wanting to just turn an old PC or laptop into a NAS? If your goal is to learn about NASs and stuff, sure. Or if it's to, you know, just to host some Aplex with stuff that's replaceable, sure. If you're trying to build something to keep your data safe, then reevaluate your priorities. No, if you're trying to, if you're trying to keep your data safe, have a proper backup. I mean, that's really the thing. And that's something that I see people getting wrong over and over and over again. I get really fed up. Uh, sorry, Reddit, our data hoarder folks, but like that's one thing that I get fed up with over and over in places like, you know, our data hoarder is people just go on and on about what CPU and what NIC and, oh, only ECC RAM and this brand of hard drive versus the other because I can't possibly lose my data and they don't have a freaking backup. Absolutely. You know, you can repurpose some old PC, however janky it may be, as your NAS and throw all your data on it. And that's fine. Just, you know, if it's too important to lose that data, have a backup. Maybe that backup is another janky old PC that you've turned into a NAS. And that's fine, too. You know, synchronize between them. Make sure that they are properly backing up and regularly. And you're fine. Yes. The real rule is if there are not three copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. Yeah, so maybe two janky setups and then one cloud backup. Or anything like that. Just you you have to have backups. RAID is about uptime, right? It's about availability. It's about making sure you can access the data right now. It's not about making sure the data is always going to be there. That's what backups are for. This last thing, he is determined to blunder his way through it. That suggests to me that uh, Harold's going to be getting quite a few phone calls and messages of how to fix things and how. Uh, so, how do you stop people hassling you all the time? Like you must have helped people out before, like friends and relatives or whatever. Like, how do you stop them just hassling you constantly for free tech support? Set expectations properly up front. Hey, here's some how-tos. You can follow this. You'll probably get where you need to go. I don't have a whole lot of time to help with this. If that's the case, you know, maybe you really want to help those people and you want to take that baby on to raise. And if so, you do that. If you didn't set your expectations properly and you've got this person just hounding you, then, you know, you you, you got to nut up and tell them to bugger off at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At some point, it's like, I do server stuff. Sorry, don't ask me about your malware problems. <laughs> 
or, you know, it's like, I have an uncle and when he has a serious thing, it's like, oh, need some data recovery done. I'm like, you know, you know, that's going to cost. He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, then we'll get it done. You're so tight, Alan, charging your family. That's not on, is it? It's not about being tight. It's about, I only have so much time. Like now it would usually be, I'll refer you to someone because there's not an amount of money that would make me be able to shake loose some time. Yeah, I guess that's fair enough. There's also a difference between, you know, helping family when they have a problem and, you know, spend 12 hours recovering this screwed up file system for me. Yeah, but that 12 hours is mostly just letting it do its thing, right? Yeah. Well, I actually charged him per gigabyte of recovered data, I think. Fair enough. It was like running like PhotoRec or something like that to figure out where the files were in the totally hosed NTFS file system. That 12 hours is something sitting on your bench running that you're at least having to lightly babysit the whole way through. And it's got to be to some degree in your mind for that full 12 hours or you don't even remember to check it when it's done. I mean, Mm. all that has a real cost. There's only so much of that crap you can do. Yeah. And that's why I don't do any of it anymore. Where do you draw the line with family then, Jim? For the most part, I, I don't set them up with things that are going to be, you know, horrendous to maintain to begin with. My father-in-law does not have either a Windows PC or a Linux PC. He's got a Chromebox because that is the thing that it is the absolute hardest for him to accidentally misconfigure or screw up. And it's also one of the easiest for either me or my wife, who does most of his tech support, you know, to, to help him with. So, you know, you, you go in understanding what your expectations are and what their abilities are, and you supply them with a proper solution. If my father-in-law said that, you know, he wanted me to set him up with, you know, a NAS that was accessible from the internet. I don't know. You ever seen that gif of the, uh, the badger that sees something it doesn't like and goes, nope, 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 ah, and leaps off the cliff screaming like that would be me. That's not something I'm going to do. Yeah. Like the only reason my dad has a Windows computer is because he got into gaming when he got my old computer 20 something years ago. <laughs> and so he still has a Windows computer, but that's the only reason he doesn't have something like a Chromebox. And my mom, yeah, she uses Facebook and that's about it. My mom can build a computer from parts. If I just dumped all the parts on the kitchen table, she could build the whole computer because she helped me do it so many times when, you know, I was helping a friend as a business or, you know, when I'm like, all right, we're, we're buying five new servers and we need to assemble them this weekend. And she can usually unscrew whatever my dad managed to screw up on his computer. But other than my parents, I don't really help anybody. Yeah, I mean, Joe, let's let's turn that around. You know, what would you tell your mom if she said, hey, you know, Joe, I'm going to do audio engineering on a podcast. Can you help me with that? What would you say? I just don't even, with what I would say to that, I'd say... Nope, 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 and jump off a cliff, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've got a video that I made uh, someone of how to do basic stuff in Audacity, but it's just such a ludicrous thing that uh, it's more like, what would I do say my brother asked me that? I think, you know, because he's used Audacity before, he's he's got some idea of these things. I think for him, I would send him the, a link to this video that I made, uh, which is not public, in case anyone's wondering, unfortunately, and just show him just how to do basic EQ, basic compression, basic balancing of the levels, and that would be it, I think. So then if he just keeps pestering you, you know, on uh, Google Meet and email and everywhere else saying, well, I don't get this and I don't get that and I don't get the other and, you know, constantly wanting help, what do you do then? I really don't know. At some point, you nut up and however politely tell him to bugger off. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, Setting expectations properly up front can make it a lot easier to draw that line if you have to and make it less likely that you will have to draw that line because they know 
this person might be my family, but they're not going to spend their entire next week doing this stuff for me. But if it doesn't, well, you know, human problems require human solutions. There are these things online that can teach you how to do things. <laughs> it's like the, the slightly modified version of the old adage is like, you know, if you buy a man a fishing pole, then he'll need to buy all the other things too. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have slightly butchered that one, Alan, but I, I did butcher that one. I, I, but, you know, if you buy a man a fishing pole, then he'll want a boat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there, there is one concrete, you know, little piece of advice I can give that, that sort of leads you in the right direction with that. Like, if you've got somebody who is getting out kind of to the limits of their technical ability and they ask you a question about how to do a relatively complex thing, don't tell them step by step how to do it yourself. Find a reasonably good guide online with screenshots and give them a link to it. This looks like it's about the right answer and just like leave it at that. This will show you how to do the thing and just completely minimize your your personal investment in that. A, there will usually be a perfectly good walkthrough for whatever thing is somewhere, whether you wrote it or not. And B, it kind of helps set expectations up front that like, okay, I, I might kind of get a nudge, but uh, this person isn't going to spend their next eight hours, you know, pushing all the buttons for me. Yeah. Link them to a fishing book on Amazon, fishing with an F that is, <laughs> rather than teaching them to fish or giving them a fish i don't know what have you done to me alan you've destroyed this analogy completely now yes we better get out of here then remember show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in you can find me on twitter at joe ressington i'm at jrssnet and i'm at alan jude we'll be back next week